0: Wanna give love to the city, that's a fact. But
1: you're gonna need help if you wanna make an impact. Well endowed, you want to be well with the Edmonton community. Things really happen when you find that you're well endowed. Hi everyone, welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. We're your hosts Elizabeth Bonkink
2: and Andrew Paul. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we're a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. And I should also mention there is a tiny dog in the studio that you'll probably be able to hear all episode long. <laughs> Those are licks. Oh, yes. They're so not very many loud. kisses. Okay. <laughs> all right. Who is this little puppy, by the way, Elizabeth?
1: That's Ellie. Ellie's just making a, vi- a guest visit today. And she's like, Adorable. Yes,
2: adorable. An adorable cocker spaniel.
1: Yes, she's about six months old.
2: And a little bitey.
1: A little bitey because she's tired.
2: All right. Well, back to the show. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Edmonton is full of generous donors who've created endowment funds at ECF. These funds generate money to give back to Edmonton's community. On this podcast, we share stories from spaces where endowments and communities intersect. Because it's good to be well endowed.
2: So before we get started, we have a quick update about the Edmonton Shift Lab. The Shift Lab is launching version 2.0, which is now live. If you haven't checked out their website in a while, now is a good time to head over to theedmontonshiftlab.ca to see what they've got cooking up for this coming year. So Elizabeth, what's up on today's episode?
1: Well, today we're talking to award-winning journalist Paula Simons. She joins us to talk about her experience in the Senate. So many of you may not know that Paula is now a senator. I sat down with Paula to get the scoop about what her transition to the Senate has been like and what happens behind the scenes. So thank you for joining us today. We have award-winning columnist Paula Simons with us. She was with the Edmonton Journal for 23 years. So many years. And the last time you joined us, we were on the Well Endowed podcast. Uh, You had written an essay for the Canada 150 anthology that we had published, which has now won gold, by the way, from the AMPA Awards. Um, But a lot has happened since then. Do you want to bring us up to date? Well, I'm no longer a columnist with the Edmonton Journal. Right. Uh, on
0: October 16th, I was sworn in to the Senate of Canada, where I now sit as an independent senator. I feel the need to stress that at every opportunity. Uh, an independent senator representing Alberta. It's interesting. Some provinces you have a system where you represent a particular region or, you know, sort of, it's not a riding, but it's like a riding. Uh, in Alberta, it doesn't work that way. So in theory, I represent all of Alberta. But currently in the Senate, there are three senators who are from the sort of greater Edmonton area and three senators who are from Calgary and southern Alberta. So we do kind of divvy it up that way.
1: Now, you um, said that you need to stress that you're an independent senator. Can you tell us how the structure of the Senate has changed recently?
0: Absolutely. People may recall that when the Senate scandals were kind of at their ugliest in 2014, 2015, uh, Justin Trudeau who was then certainly not the prime minister he was the new leader of the third party in the parliament as it was then because the uh, the conservatives were government the NDP were the official opposition and the liberals were the the small third party but in order to sort of insulate his party from uh a senate scandal he basically released all the liberal senators and said you're not members of my caucus anymore you're not members of my you know my my parliamentary group you are now sitting independence. Now, some of those liberals didn't want to sit as They felt very connected to their liberal identity, and so they now sit as the independent liberal caucus. I'm not one of them. When Justin Trudeau did become prime minister, he set up a new system for putting people into the Senate. Under the old model, the prime minister of the day, whoever it was, conservative or liberal, tended, I mean, not always, but they tended to appoint um, party loyalists, people who had been Uh, good party members, party donors, political allies. Um, Every now and again, there would be interesting sort of appointments uh, that transcended that. Here in Edmonton, for example, Doug Roche, who had been a conservative MP, was appointed, I I believe, by Jean Chrétien. Uh, He sat as an independent senator. Um, Elaine McCoy, who'd been a progressive conservative cabinet minister, was appointed to the Senate by Paul Martin, who was a liberal prime minister. So every now and again, you got these bright... um, exceptions. But in general, the senators tended to be people who were, you know, party apparatchiks or party, you know, good gend up party members. Trudeau decided he was not going to do that anymore. And he set up an independent arm's length advisory panel, which is supposed to go out and scour the country and look for different kinds of people to be senators, not sort of your typical politicians and uh, people have been invited to apply to be senators. So over the last two years, um, the Prime Minister has made some really interesting appointments to the Senate of the kinds of people who might normally never have found themselves there. It's a really interesting cross-section of talented people from all kinds of backgrounds and walks of life, and I applied kind of on a dare um, back in March, and then I didn't hear anything for seven months, and I thought, well, okay, so never mind about that. And then kind of out of the blue, I was contacted in September and told that, you know, they were vetting me on a a short list. And uh, then the first week in October,
1: I got a call from the prime minister. So that's some pretty exciting news. It was pretty exciting
0: news. And it was a big transition for me uh, when the prime minister called. I actually asked him if I could have twenty four hours to think it over and talk about it with my family. I don't think that was the response he was expecting. <laughs> Expect not, <laughs> but but it's one thing. I I said to him at the time. I feel like the dog that caught the car, that chased the car and then caught it.
2: because Now what? <laughs> now what?
0: Because I, I loved my job at the Edmonton Journal. I, I loved being a, a a columnist. I loved being a journalist. I loved uh, writing for the people of Edmonton, telling Edmonton stories. And so I came home, and I you know I had a. A big talk with my with my husband with my adult daughter who's well at the time was 21 with my brother you know trying to figure out if we could make this work for our family if i could still do this job which requires a lot of travel back and forth from ottawa to edmonton and still you know still be a mom still uh, help to provide care to my elderly parents um still you know be able to walk my dog and so it was with great trepidation That I said yes. And indeed, the night before my swearing in, uh, my husband and daughter and I were all in our hotel room in Ottawa. And I kind of curled up into a ball in the fetal position and started to cry and said, what have I done? You know, what have I done to our family? And uh, I'm very happy to report. That because my husband and my daughter are fabulous people and my brother is a fabulous person it's so far it's all working out uh the dog is very disappointed every time I fly away but she's been happy to have me home for January
1: now you had mentioned about um you know filling out an application what were some of the the application criteria that you had to had to uh to read to meet or to to look at
0: well some of them Are
1: very old-fashioned
0: because they date right back to 1867 when Canada uh, first started its Senate so for example you have to own you have to have a like freehold property uh, worth you mean like you know after mortgage worth at least $4,000 and then you have to have a a net worth of at least $4,000 now uh, that's not a very hard bar to meet in 2018 2019 if you own a house Um, but of course, in 1867, that was a lot more money. I mean, you would have been very, very wealthy to qualify. Uh, I, I tried to work it up with the uh, Bank of Canada uh, inflation calculator. It doesn't go back to 1867, but let's say, it, I mean, it, you would have had to have a net worth of approximately like four hundred thousand dollars in today's in today's money. I think. So I had to I had to meet that qualification. But under the new system, I mean, it, it, there are questions that this prime minister. Panel asks that are different, so I had to. I, mean, I was asked, for example, have you ever donated to a political party? And I could honestly say no. I was asked if you ever, you know, been a member of a political party, and I could honestly say no. I was asked if you know, there would be any other conflicts of interest, and you know, the good thing about being a journalist is that you don't have enough money to have any financial conflicts of interest. <laughs> you know, I didn't have any stocks and bonds. I didn't have any, you know, corporate interests that were going to get in the way of being in the Senate. Um, What the form tells you is that you need to be one of three things. You either have to be um, somebody who who really understands the parliamentary system. So, you know, you get marks for having been a parliamentarian or a member of a legislature. Um, That's one category. You get marks for kind of being at the top of your profession and for having won awards in your profession. And you get marks for uh, basically, you know, serving the public and, and doing good works and so it's interesting the cross-section of people who have been appointed under this system. Some of them are former parliamentarians. Um, Francis Lankin, for example, is a senator from Ontario who's a former provincial NDP cabinet minister. Um, other people are like Marie Sinclair, uh, the uh, indigenous judge and the man who chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Pat Bovie, who is an art historian and museum curator. So you get, you know, Bev Busson who was in the first recruit class of the RCMP that had women. She was the first female commissioned officer of the RCMP and would later go on to be a commissioner in BC and uh, for a time acting commissioner of the RCMP, the first woman to hold that role. So, you know, there's some fascinating people. Um, Brian Francis, who was sworn in the same day as me, is a chief of a Mi'kmaq First Nation in PEI. Peter Beam, who was sworn in the same day I was, is Canada's former ambassador to Germany and former deputy minister who ran the G7 conference for Canada. And of course, I was sworn in the same day as Patty Lapagan Benson, who is uh, a Métis community leader in uh, in the Edmonton area, and a long, long-time advocate for Indigenous children and families. So these are people who might not have been appointed under the old system, but under this new system, you know, they sort of get credit. You know, they, they are chosen because of their commitment to their communities. I mean, one of my other fellow new, new-ish senators, uh, Muhammad Iqbal Ravella, is a physician from Twillingate, Newfoundland. Uh, and a former professor at Memorial University, born in what was then Rhodesia, and has been working in rural communities across Canada as a physician and academic, and you know, so there's some really fascinating people who are sitting in the Senate with me, and I'm, I often feel like the village idiot, you know, I I'm not a constitutional law prof, I'm not a I'm not a research scientist, so uh, it's it's very cool to be in such company.
1: Well, I think it's amazing that it's sort of starting to reflect Canada a little bit more in terms of the diversity and variety of people. Not everyone is a politician in Canada. So, I mean, having that variety is great.
0: Not everyone is a politician. And I mean, I think with this system, there's certainly, it's more multicultural. Uh, There are many more Indigenous, I mean, I think we're now up to 12 Indigenous senators, uh, which is more than 10%. So, uh, you know, certainly, there there have been non-white people appointed to the Senate in the past, but I think this is the most diverse Senate that Canada has ever had in all sorts of senses, not just in terms of cultural background, but in terms of the walks of life people have come from.
1: The Senate, many people think, is is sort of obsolete. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the Chamber of Sober Second Thought and what the Senate actually does well, or what it should do. What
0: it should do. I mean, this is, this is what it... This is what it should do. The Senate is there, I guess, for three main purposes. It's there to advise the government that when legislation comes before us, uh, we can suggest amendments, we can suggest areas of weakness in the legislation. We can also, though, proactively uh, commission reports and do studies that give advice to the government in its policymaking. So advising and amending is, is a big part of what we do. It's also our job to represent the regions of Canada. That's the way the Senate seats are apportioned, so that, say, in particular, the Maritimes gets far more seats in the Senate than its population might suggest because, you know, the Senate is there to protect regional interests and to protect, you know, uh, linguistic minorities as well. Uh, And, of course, the Senate is there to protect the Charter of Freedoms and uphold the values of the Constitution. So we... As senators, we can't just defeat bills that we don't like by something called the Salisbury Convention, uh, which comes to us from, from uh, British history. Uh, the Senate is not supposed to defeat particularly bills that the government has campaigned upon in, in a previous election. So if a government says it's going to do this and they have a mandate to do that, um, it's not really our place to say, no, you can't do that. Uh, but it is fundamentally our job to protect the country from majority tyranny to protect the rights of minorities and to protect civil liberties and human rights in general so i mean fundamentally we're there like a fire extinguisher so you break glass if the country goes off the rails if you get a prime minister who's elected by you know by by the popular vote who nonetheless brings in policies that are antithetical to the charter of rights and freedoms it is our bound in duty to stand up and defend the Charter and defend the rights of, of Canadians.
1: I think that's exactly what the Senate should be doing, is, is uh, making sure that what goes through isn't just railroaded through. Yeah. I mean, we're not there to be a rubber stamp. On the other hand, we're not there to be
0: obstructionist for the sake of being obstructionist. What's interesting is that um, the independent senators, there are now 54 official members of the independent Senate group That's 54 out of 105 senators. So we're now the largest group in the Senate. Uh, The prime minister appointed four more senators uh, in December. They haven't yet said whether they are going to join the independent Senate group, but it's not an unreasonable probability at which point there would hypothetically be 58 independent senators out of 105. So it presents an interesting... Nexus point I guess for parliamentary democracy because the independent Senate group we don't have a leader we have a facilitator um, we don't caucus together except we sort of you know we get together to talk about things uh, and we don't vote as a block uh, so it's really tricky because it's still the job of the Senate to to pass government legislation when when it's sort of come up to come up to snuff. And so it's a challenge. Grant Mitchell, a senator from Edmonton, um, is a member of, this is sort of a three-member, almost like a steering committee in the Senate, uh, led by Peter Harder, uh, who's the government leader in the Senate. And it's their job to kind of steer legislation through. So Grant Mitchell has the unenviable job. He's like being a whip without a whip. He has to count noses, but he can't actually strong-arm people into voting the way the government wants them to vote. Uh, so it's, it's a very tricky thing, because once you put all these independent senators in place, you create a potential dynamic where if they start flexing their muscles, um, you could get into sort of a perpetual game of ping pong between the House of Commons and the Senate. You know, the House of Commons puts a bill before us. We amend it. We send the amendments back to the House of Commons. The House of Commons doesn't accept our amendments. They send it back to us. You know, we suggest other amendments. Or You know, you know, you, you can't get into an infinite feedback loop of, of bills ping-ponging between mm-hmm. the two. And in theory, the Senate is, in most cases, supposed to defer to the elected House. I mean, they... Are, the MPs are elected and they're accountable. We're appointed and we're not directly accountable to voters. So they you know, they are supposed to, in a, in a game of ping pong, a, a, tie goes, a tie goes to the House of Commons. So we're going to have to choose our moments as an independent caucus. We can't, as I say, we can't just flex our muscles for the sake of flexing our muscles. There's going to have to be an equilibrium that's established where the House still has its traditional prerogatives but we're more empowered than ever to call out bad legislation and flaws in legislation
1: when we see it. And that's the amazing thing about having lots of independence is that there's lots of independent thought. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and it's interesting because those independent
0: conversations in which we don't caucus, but we converse. I mean, these are really, really smart people with very strong political and moral opinions. And some of the debate just within the, the privacy of those independent Senate group meetings is just amazing. Um, You know, you get the issues hashed out and and people, you know, but hurting cats doesn't even begin to describe it.
1: (laughs) Everyone comes in with their opinion.
0: Yeah, you know, and and they've all been leaders in their their various things, right? So there are not a lot of people in there who are particularly used to being different, you know, deferential. Either they've been really successful in business or really successful running NGOs or really successful uh, in the civil service um, or really successful in government positions. And so it's interesting to me, actually, given the potential for the number of hypothetical gigantic egos in that room, that it works as well as it does. And I think it's, it, it's a bit because everybody senses
1: that they're among equals. I just want to uh, go back to something that you had said a little bit earlier, which was talking about the debates and um, and how you're not there just to defeat legislation for the sake of defeating legislation. And, you know, there was some criticism um, or at least some individuals' voices coming out and saying that you should just simply vote down Bill C-69. Yeah, yeah there
0: have been more
1: than a few individuals. Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite, quite a number. My, yeah. off, my office
0: staff and I have been extremely busy responding to, to these concerns. All right, so... For those of you who are not deep political nerds and have not been following C-69, uh, C-69 is a big piece of legislation. It's three bills stuck together that deal primarily with how we uh, do environmental assessments for giant infrastructure projects. So it's not just pipelines, and it's not just power lines. It's everything from, it could be high-speed rail, it could be... um, uh, Um, a new federal airport, it could be something that's energy related like an offshore wind farm, but it could also be something that has nothing to do with energy at all, like a giant bridge that might change the course of a navigable waterway. So these are all the kinds of giant infrastructure projects, and the idea was to come up with an impact assessment system that would be more transparent, uh, more nimble, but still protect the environment and, very importantly, uh, protect the uh, the rights of indigenous Canadians, uh, whether that's on treaty land or on unceded territory. The problem being that, you know, there's nimbyism out there from many, many quarters. This isn't just about, you know, uh, indigenous groups in British Columbia. This is about anybody who doesn't want a giant, honking piece of infrastructure on their land. Uh, and so... It's really tough to write a piece of legislation that strikes the balance between protecting property rights and allowing for the construction of really badly needed national infrastructure, including pipelines. So Bill C-69 tries to do that. I think it tries and fails. I think there are significant weaknesses in the bill. Um, I spent some time on Twitter uh, Monday night outlining some of them, Uh, and so... Faced with this piece of legislation, and faced with a lot of people asking me to kill it, I can tell you two things. One, I, Paula Simons, cannot with my one little vote kill a piece of government legislation, especially one that you know uh, has has passed the Commons uh, with a you know s- with significant government support. Two, it's really what I can do is that I'm a I'm a brand new member of this Senate Standing Committee on energy, the environment, and natural resources. So what I can do is go into that committee room, which I will do the first week in February, and start asking tough questions and then eventually proposing and championing amendments, trying to build uh, consensus on the energy committee to get some of my chosen amendments passed. I don't think this bill... I couldn't vote for the bill in its current form, I think it's possible, and maybe I'm naive because I'm pretty new to this. That we can that we can amend the bill to to stave off some of the bigger problems that represents. Because the other thing I want to tell you is that I've spent the last three months meeting. Well, I guess like starting starting. I met my first industry lobby group the day after I was sworn in. The Canadian Energy Pipeline Association. I've been meeting with all different kinds of industry groups and all different kinds of environmental groups, and the industry groups. Have been pretty unanimous in saying to me that they do not want the bill killed because if they kill the bill, we start the process all over again, and it's years more until we get an impact assessment system that works. What industry groups uh, from a wide range of industries have said to me is that they want to see the bill amendment amended, that you know that they hope to see the bill made into something that they think w- will be workable, and so. It's my goal to try and shape C-69 into a better piece of legislation in committee. If I can't do that, I'm not going to vote in favor of it. I'm not going to vote in favor of a piece of legislation that I think is fundamentally flawed, uh, and I will stand up for Alberta and fight for Alberta. But I'm not going to tell you today that I'm going to kill the bill, because A, I can't kill the bill. B, I don't think that's the best thing for industry or for the province, and C, I, I want to give it a good faith effort in committee to see if we can help shape legislation and, and come up with amendments
1: that the government will accept if when we send it back to the House. I wanted to ask you also, you know, like you've um, issued lots of... Um, I don't want to say statements, but you've spoken a lot about this. So... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't issued a statement. That, no, that's, I'm, yeah, you know, but, but it, you've spoken a fair bit about this. Why do you think it's important to explain how you voted? Is it just because of people phoning in, or do you think that there's a, another thing there?
0: No, I mean, I mean, in, in part, I started doing it because people were attacking me for doing something I hadn't done, and I was like, <laughs> like, no, I did not vote to pass the bill. But, but it involved, I think, a really important conversation, and it was really an epiphany for me to realize how little people understand about how the Senate works and what it does. And the Senate has been, you know, the secret shrouded house behind a curtain for so long. And I want to be part of a growing movement of senators who want to open up what the Senate does. Starting in February, we're going to be televised for the first time. It will be riveting, guys. It'll be so interesting. Um, but we will, be, we will be transparent for the first time because oftentimes, because there's not very much press coverage of what goes on in the Senate, people have no idea. Like, bills go in there and, you know, they come out again and it's like, it's like a shroud of darkness. So we're going we're gonna to be lifting off the curtain. People are going to be able to see us stuff the sausage. It'll be edifying. We already live stream our committee meetings so that when the Energy Committee is meeting on C69, people will be able to watch most of our hearings uh, online anyway but the Senate will then be on television. Uh, I've started, as many people will know, live tweeting from the Senate floor, um, and I'm happy to say that I've inspired one of my colleagues, Pierre Dalphon, who's a very respected Quebec jurist and legal scholar, a very dignified, elegant person, not the tiniest bit like me, um, but he was absolutely fascinated when I started live tweeting the uh, debate on the, the back-to-work postal legislation, and uh, he's, he got his young staffers to put Twitter on his laptop, and now he's live tweeting in French. Uh, and so it's, I think, really important that, that those of us who are new to the Senate uh, help to explain what it's there for, what it does. Uh, we're, we're recording this podcast on uh, tuesday the 22nd of january uh tomorrow i'm speaking to a university of alberta poli sci class the professor invited me uh he sent a note saying you know he doesn't believe in the senate and he thinks the senate should be abolished he tells his students that all the time and would i like to come and explain you know basically why we ought to exist and thanks I thought, for that introduction <laughs> uh, thank, thank, thank you uh, but i i i you know i i couldn't wait to email him back and And it's a twofold thing, Elizabeth. I mean, on the one hand, um, I'm happy to explain what the Senate at its best is supposed to be doing. But the other thing people need to understand is that it's one thing to say, oh, you should abolish the Senate. It's another thing to figure out how you do that. In 2014, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that to abolish the Senate, you would need the unanimous consent of the House of Commons of all 10 provinces and the Senate. So hmm. you know, as, <laughs> I don't know if that would work. As 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 Regina George would say, "Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen." <laughs> uh, so if we can't abolish the Senate, and really, I mean, practically speaking, the odds that all ten provinces, the House, and the Senate would agree to abolish the Senate, they're low. Yeah, pretty slim. It's pretty slim. So if if you're more or less stuck with the Senate. How do you make it relevant for the 21st century? How do you restore public confidence in an institution that has inspired so much scorn and skepticism? We can't do that with secrecy. We have to do that with light.
1: I, I appreciate so much that you um, are continuing to report <laughs> as a reporter <laughs> um, on this kind of thing. And I think it's so important. And I hope um, other people see this too, that you know, in today's um, environment of populist politics that you we we need that stop mechanism that's that so that it's not things that are just flowing through quickly and that there's something there to stop it and uh i think that's the most important thing that a a senate can do for canada you know it hasn't happened very often there have been very few
0: cases in canadian history where the senate has said no you just can't do that uh and it's not a power you want to misuse you know um my my daughter, who uh, is eating is, is her gap here before going to law school next year, um, has a job this uh, winter working in a YMCA after-school care program. And some of her colleagues have been demonstrating that they use the I'm-going-to-count-to-five method. Um, and she said to me, I'm really scared to do that because what if I get to five and I don't know what I'm going to do? I said, first of all, when you were a kid, I only ever counted to three. None of this counting to five business. I counted to three. I'm going to count to three. One, two. She said, what happened when you got to three? I said, I never got to three. I got to two. And you, you know, so I think that's that's the Senate. I mean, you know, we're going to count to five. And we'd better, you know, getting to five is is the nuclear option. We like to
1: hope that as we're counting down that, that, that cooler heads prevail. So just some final thoughts. Um, what do you hope to accomplish as a senator? <sighs>
0: that's a really good question. I mean... I guess first and foremost and it's maybe the most manageable thing is I want to explain the Senate better to people. I want to do interviews like this one. I want to go to speak to junior high classes and rotary clubs and seniors facilities to explain what the Senate does and why we do it and to take to Twitter to explain, you know, the big debates in the Senate as they're happening to try and lift the veil and clear the mist, you know, I want to be the fog lights. But I also want to represent Alberta and represent Alberta well. Alberta only gets six seats in the Senate. Um, That's a legacy from the fact that when we entered Confederation in 1905, we were a very little province and probably giving us six seats then was generous. Now that we're a much larger province, uh, six seats does not reflect the size of our population. And so that's why I think it's really important that each of us who represents Alberta uh, does so in a full-throated and very intense way, because we need all of us. And I'm, you know, I'm so thrilled to be working with with my five Alberta colleagues who are all, um, you know, it's a very collegial group, even if we're coming from different parties and backgrounds. Uh, I think we all understand that we have to put that we want that we want to represent Alberta to the best of our abilities. And that includes explaining Alberta to senators from other parts of the country and trying not to separate ourselves, but to make national alliances. You know, there is a bit of a separatist groundswell in Alberta right now, and I think it's ugly and ill-advised. I think what we need to be doing as Alberta senators isn't just defending Alberta, but making the alliances and the friendships from coast to coast to understand that we need to move forward as Albertans within a united country that understands the important role that Alberta plays in that confederation. And, you know, there are lots of other things. I mean, I would like to work with Patty Labakan Benson on indigenous child welfare issues. I would like to, I mean, I'm on the Transportation and Communications Committee, so I'd like to we have a big report ahead of us um, to figure out uh, how we regulate or don't regulate uh, broadcast media in a post digital world, or not a post. I mean, you know, a post digital revolution world. Uh, so, you know, and I'm with with luck, and you know, if my health, uh, you know, continues to be to be good, I'm in the Senate till I'm 75. So I imagine that between I'm 54 now in case you wanted to work the math uh, that between now and then uh, a lot of other issues will come up and I just hope to be engaged and curious and present and to stay connected to you know uh, my home here in Edmonton to take
1: Edmonton's questions to Ottawa and I so appreciate that you are engaged with uh, many people on Twitter through Facebook and talking to different groups and coming out and talking to us today um, and ha- just explaining people to people what is going on in the Senate. And uh, I, I know I've learned a lot from hearing you a couple times, just <laughs> different things that uh, I wasn't aware of. And uh, it, I think this is a, an amazing opportunity. Just the, My last question to you is what do you what, what fun thing? What's been most fun about becoming a senator? What's been
0: most fun about becoming a senator? You know, when my daughter went off to university five years ago, I was really quite envious, right? She went off to McGill, and she made all these new friends, and she learned all these new things. And it was this, you know, very nice collegiate uh, camaraderie. And I stayed home here in Edmonton with my husband and the dog and, you know, thought, oh, she's off having all these adventures. I wish I could go off and have adventures. So now it's funny how much joining the Senate is like going back to school. I mean, you sit, you sit at your desk, and the bells ring, and they take attendance. Uh, but it's also in that sense that you're being thrown together with all of these smart, curious people with these amazing backgrounds from all across the country. And, you know, you make friends. And you, you know, because you're in that hothouse environment, I mean, there was there was one night that uh, we were supposed to have a a, a confidential briefing on the new free trade agreement with the United States and Mexico, and something fell through, and at the last minute, the briefing didn't happen. And so, you know, a, a group of us went back to uh, one of you know one of my new Senate pals' condo, and you know, we had snacks and drank wine. They drank wine. I, you know, I'm not much of a drinker, but you know, uh, even I had a little little, little little tiny sip of wine. Um, and you know, we, it's it's just it's it's weirdly parallel to being an undergrad <laughs> and so, and so um, I'm so blessed I'm so privileged I'm so lucky to have this job and I know I mean many many people on Twitter last night compared me to a pig at a trough um, so many pig jokes wow um, <laughs> that's so, terrible so many um, and I understand right I mean I have I have a really good great gig you know with with a with a salary that's certainly higher than i made as a journalist with you know with a pension with all the things that people rant and rave about about the senate um but that's not really the privilege the privilege is to be surrounded with such smart creative um idealistic people and to know that whatever party you're from because I've, I've made friends with, you know, I've made friends with conservative senators, too, uh, to know that whichever party you represent, that you're there with a commitment to serve the people of Canada and to serve the ideals of Canada. And so, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I you know, I, I get to work in a cool building and have people open the door for me when I come in. But that's not really the privilege. The privilege is to have this opportunity to serve.
1: I think people need to remember too that um it's not like you just show up and they hand you money. No, there's I mean, work you know, I, involved. I have to say real work. I
0: have to say that when I was a cynical journalist, uh, taking shots at the Senate, um it's it's a lot more work than I think I think those of us who are not, you know, who who are outside that Ottawa bubble, uh, realize. It when you're sitting in the Senate it's very long days. Um, lots of reading, lots of thinking. Um, and different senators, you know, throw themselves into it to different degrees, right? I mean, uh, there's nobody who's your boss. There's nobody telling you to do these things. But it's a lot of very driven type A perfectionist personalities in there. And so there's there's really immense peer pressure to keep up, you know. If you with, don't do your homework. If you don't do your homework, then you look like a fool, right? So, um, but there's no one making you do it. There's no one making you do it. It has to come from inside you. So uh, the people who are working hard are working very hard indeed.
1: Anything else you want to add?
0: I just, I just want to thank uh, you and the Edmonton Community Foundation. I think this podcast is such a great idea. I'm so excited to be back on to talk about something completely different. And uh, I thank the Edmonton Community Foundation for all the fantastic work
2: it,
1: it does in our community. Thank you so much to Paula Simons for telling us about her adventures in the Senate and for giving us a window into how the Senate works.
2: If you'd like to keep up with the decisions and conversations the Senate is taking on, you can follow Paula on Twitter at politics, spelled P-A-U-L-A-T-I-C-S.
1: I always thought that was really clever. And we'll be sure to have the links to more information about the Canadian Senate in our show notes.
2: Okay, and if you haven't uh, noticed, Ellie is still with us in the studio, wreaking havoc. (laughs) And tasting
1: (laughs) everything. everything.
2: Yes. (laughs) So before we close the show, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to another member of the Alberta Podcast Network. So this week, uh, I want to chat about Emily Missed Out, or Did She?, which is hosted by Brienne and Emily, where they sit down and watch classic pop culture films uh, that Emily should have watched a long time ago. So this show is actually really fun, uh, and you get a nice uh, sort of succinct recap of some film history, uh, of a whole bunch of classics, but also uh, maybe films that aren't quite classics yet, but are, you know, destined to be... Uh, So I listened to episode 37 last, uh, which was an episode focusing on The Godfather. And uh, during this episode, I learned some fun things like Revenge is a Dish Best Served Cold came from the movie and all sorts of fun little pop culture tidbits. So, Elizabeth, I want to know, what is a classic movie that you should have seen a long time ago but haven't yet?
1: You know, I have never seen all of the... Star Wars movies, I've seen little tiny bits and pieces of them, but I've never actually seen any of them. I know the references because I used to be married to a Star Wars geek, but I've never seen them. So I guess I should be ashamed.
2: <laughs> so you're talking about like, the original trilogy you haven't seen? None of them. No? None Not of them.
1: a single movie in its entirety. <laughs> I've seen bits and pieces only.
2: Uh, well, I have never really watched any of the Marvel superhero movies i just haven't been able to uh sit down and spend the time and they keep pumping them out every year so i don't know if i'll ever get to uh seeing all of the (laughs) spider-man films or
1: you need to be snowed in (laughs) uh,
2: i guess so maybe if i get really sick one day (laughs) i'll just hunker down and plow through also i've never seen any of the rocky movies uh just
1: actually i've never seen them either
2: yeah Well, anyway, uh, I recommend everybody go check out Emily Missed Out. uh, And we would also just like to know what are some of the classic films out there that you should have seen but haven't yet. So you can find Emily Missed Out on the Alberta Podcast Network's website at thealbertapodcastnetwork.com or on the CKUA radio app or wherever else you like to listen to your podcasts. We'll have the link in our show notes.
1: So ECF has two granting deadlines coming up. Just a reminder that the Young Edmonton Grants for Initiatives Led by Folks Ages 13 to 24 is due on February fifteenth,
2: And the deadline for community grants is on March first. Community grants are for charities in the greater Edmonton area and can be up to $40,000. If your organization is in need of funding, please visit the ECF website at ecfoundation.org to learn more.
1: And one more thing before we go. Andrew, did you know that the one and only Terry Cruz is coming to Edmonton?
2: Uh, Yes, I have heard word and I am very excited for this
1: he will be at the Shaw Conference Center on February 20th, and it's presented by the Alberta Council of Women's Shelters. Terry Crews speaks about what it means to be a modern man and how men can help create a safer world for women and girls. So we'll have a link to where you can buy tickets in our show notes.
2: Well, and in the meantime, if you're looking for a future classic with Terry Crews, you could always check out Brooklyn Nine-Nine.
1: That is a great show.
2: All right, folks, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it.
1: If you have an extra minute, please share this episode with your friends and leave us a review on iTunes.
2: We really appreciate those reviews. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul.
1: And Elizabeth and Ellie. Until next time.